It's good. It's good that our epistle reading this week, uh, Romans 12, 1 through 8, comes in the same week that we're launching our fall home groups because in this passage, the Apostle Paul is describing the kind of life that's available to us only within the context of community. We've given a lot of energy in our home groups over the past year to exploring the attributes of healthy community, particularly in our study of the other half of church, the four ingredients of healthy relational soil, the true joy found through genuine connection, being with people who are glad to be with you, and building that muscle the hesed love of secure attachments, the kind of steadfast love, group identity that is based on the character of Christ, and a culture of uplifting, healthy correction. We want to move ever forward in these, in these things and also continually be asking from different biblical perspectives, what kind of community is God calling us to be here at Redeemer? What kind of community ought we strive to be as we together seek, in the name of Christ, the flourishing of our neighbors? Paul is giving us another, in some ways, more foundational perspective in this passage. And as we explore it, I hope we'll see three things together the common that creates this community, the quality that defines it, and the purpose that drives it. First, the common that creates this community. Common, of course, is the root word of community, and to be part of a community is to hold certain things in common. These then become the foundation of the connection and relationship that's built within a community. For Christians, the common in community is an experience. I want to start here with an experience because this is where Paul starts with the church in Rome. These were folks from radically different groups, demographics we would call them today, who often had great cultural antipathy toward each other. Jews, Romans, Greeks, the wealthy, the impoverished, women, men, the enslaved and the free. And yet, they were brought together in this community of the early church and forged it by the power of the Holy Spirit into a community of almost unbreakable bond. So what common experience was it that created and defined this powerful, beautiful, attractive, and ultimately world-changing community? St. Paul answers that in verse 1 and tells us in two, just two short phrases. The one is right at the beginning of the sentence, and the second is a little bit farther. The first one is therefore, and the second is in view of God's mercy. As you've heard me say often, when we read the word therefore, it's incumbent on us to dig a little deeper to find out what the therefore is there for. Here, it's agreed that Paul is referring back to chapters 1 through 11. Everything in this epistle has come to this point. 
And if you go back and read those chapters, you'll discover that the point Paul is making is that regardless of who you are, regardless of your background, regardless of whether you grew up in a religious environment or not, regardless of whether you've kept the law of God or not, regardless of whether you've been scrupulous in religious observances, regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile, as it took him two chapters to cover, does not matter. Every single one of us needs simply to experience the sheer, unbounded mercy of God. All the good deeds, all the religion, all the law-keeping amounts to nothing in the sight of a holy God. Salvation or eternal life can be found only in Jesus Christ. And anyone, no matter what their background, no matter what their experience, anyone, the moment they place their faith in Jesus and say, what I need is the mercy of God, well, that life will be redeemed. Paul essentially summarizes all of Romans 1 through 11 with those two words. God's mercy. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Mercy. What what does that mean? It means the pity of God. It means the compassion of God. It means God's concern over the misfortune of others. It means God looking upon our absolutely hopeless plight and acting with love. You may hear that and think, actually, that sounds mildly insulting. This notion that I am helpless and what I need is rescue and and that I need someone to deliver me and there's nothing that I can do in and of myself that I need God's pity. I totally understand that. If you think that sounds mildly insulting, I I totally understand it because I'm just as prideful as you are. But if you can get over that initial offense, you will see the beauty of a community that was built on this one reality that we all equally need the mercy of God. This was a community that wasn't forged in the context of personal achievement or strength or giftedness or status or even a common grievance or hatred as so many of our quote-unquote tribes are formed today. Rather, it was a community whose foundation was common neediness and helplessness and vulnerability and weakness. It created a community that was powerful and world-changing and where anyone and everyone belonged equally because it was based on the sole condition that they acknowledge their need. That through Jesus, God was rescuing and delivering them. The experience that creates this kind of powerful, life-transforming belonging is an experience of God's mercy. His his pity, our neediness, our weakness, our brokenheartedness, because it's there that God powerfully meets us. In his book, 
life together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the well-known German pastor and theologian wrote this, our breakthrough to genuine community cannot happen because we're striving to relate to one another based upon our strengths, our gifts, our piety, and our goodness. True breakthrough to genuine community comes the moment we are able to put those guards down and understand our common sinfulness, our common brokenness, our common weakness, and our common need. It's the level ground that our liturgies insist upon. As it says in the morning prayer confession, apart from your grace, there is no health in, you know what that is? Us. And as we pray in the prayer of humble access, apart from your grace, who? We are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. You see the common there? The experience, the foundation of this new community of the church is to be overwhelmed with a shared experience of our need and the profound beauty of the mercy of God. It's the thing that makes us glad to be together. I believe this is the kind of community we're called to cultivate here at Redeemer, a community that can't help but acknowledge that what, un what unites us more than anything is a common need and experience, the mercy of God. Which leads to the quality that defines this community. In verses three through eight, Paul says this, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Instead, look at yourself with a sober, realistic assessment. And he says, if you do that assessment, if you assess yourself and the people around you assess themselves soberly and realistically, that you're going to discover, what you're gonna discover is that every single one of you, every single one of us, needs each other. There's not even one of us that in reality is truly independent or autonomous or self-reliant. Every single one of us has needs. But that sober assessment will also show that every single one of us also has gifts. That experience without exception has need I'm having trouble reading my own writing here. That everyone without exception has need and everyone without exception has gifts. We were made to need each other. We are both fundamentally needy and needed. You, all y'all, have gifts that God has embedded in your life that could be the key to unlocking the freedom and flourishing of the people who are sitting next to you right now, in front of you, behind you, beside you. And he's trying to tell people in this community, this church in Rome, who tended to see themselves as more superior, those people, 
your truest flourishing will not be found in your own achievements or abilities. And I think that's what he's telling us as well. Our truest human flourishing is going to be found in the neighbor that's sitting right next to us, right around us. That's a hard truth, isn't it? Because it doesn't, doesn't our culture at every turn tell us that you need, we need to steel ourselves against the challenges of this world. We need to withdraw, that we, we need to be autonomous. We need to be self-reliant. You do you. One pastor, Frederick Buechner, wrote this, and I find it pretty profound. The trouble with steeling yourself against the harshness of reality is that the same steel that secures your life against being destroyed secures your life also against it being opened up and transformed by the holy power that life itself comes from. You can survive on your own. You can grow strong on your own. You can even prevail on your own. But you cannot become human on Paul's saying that the quality that defines this community is not just that everyone is needy. He's saying that because everyone in this community is needy, everyone is also needed. Paul says something even stronger than that in verse 5. In Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. He's not saying, look, you guys, God gave you a gift, so you really ought to do the best you can whenever it's convenient to try to use those gifts to bless somebody. That's not what Paul is saying. What he says, when he says that we are all members of one another, he's saying your neighbor, your community, has a moral claim on the gifts that God has given you. And to neglect or to refuse to use the gifts he's given you is to deprive them of the very thing he intends for them. And so he says in verses 6 and 7, whatever gift you have, whatever it is that you've been given, use it for the good of the others in the community. And Paul's choice of adverbs in verses 6 and 7 are not incidental or superfluous, nor are they rhetorical flourish. Faithfully, generously, with zeal, diligently, cheerfully. This is a gut check for all of us, me included. Is this how, is this how you're stewarding your gifts? I mean, we have to ask ourselves that question. Third and finally, I'd like to consider the purpose that drives this community. And here we're going to go back up to verses 1 and 2, the kind of theological heart of this passage. The purpose that drives the community that God desires is a community that seeks to live as a living sacrifice. Did you notice in verse 1 that Paul urges us to offer our bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular? This, I think, is hugely significant. If it was only an individual thing, they would both be plural or both be singular. This is something I hadn't even noticed in 
until sometime in the last decade, and certainly not what I'd been taught in the environments where individual personal piety is held up as pretty much the sum and substance of the Christian life. I want to be clear here, though, because personal piety is very important. Just not what Paul is necessarily saying in this verse. He's not saying, hey, individual Christians, I want you to offer your individual body and your entire life so that each of you can individually go out and live your life as an individual living sacrifice. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying, all those who call yourselves Christians offer your bodies, your whole lives, even your physical bodies, offer your bodies. And as you bring those lives together, in community, what will emerge is the quality of community that grows. The quality of community that grows there is a living, breathing sacrifice to the glory of God. This means our community, this body, is a singular, living, breathing sacrifice. But what does the apostle mean by that? Because it's startling imagery if you think about it, isn't it? The notion of a living sacrifice, because a dead sacrifice, people in that culture would have totally understood. In the ancient world, religious services were often accompanied by the sacrifice of an animal. So you offered a sacrifice every once in a while. You did the job, the animal was dead, and then you walked away. It was done. In fact, by definition, it's not successful if the sacrifice is able to wander off the altar. That's not a successful sacrifice. In fact, it's a sacrifice fail. But a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice has to be offered every day, every hour, every minute, every second, continuously, perpetually, constantly, and unendingly. To be a living sacrifice is to say every moment, of every life, we offer and re-offer every part of ourselves, our lives to God. To live as a Christian is more than attending periodic religious services and offering, putting something in the offering every once in a while so that you can go back and live your life on your own terms. That's a dead sacrifice. But to live as a Christian is to say every moment of every day, continually, constantly, perpetually, I take my hands off my life and I say God this was never my life to live this is your life I don't get to decide my own life this is yours you hear that and you say boy that sounds like a death and in many ways it is but ultimately you'll discover that there's real life on the other side of it you might hear that and say wow that sounds really intense in fact it sounds a little too fanatical for me and so as I think about this whole Christian faith, if that's the demand, I'm not quite sure that's what I want to get myself into. And at least it would be honest if you did. But let's be candid. You're already doing that. Every single one of us is already laying down our lives as a living sacrifice at the altar of something that we have come to believe is ultimate. Every single one of us is conforming our lives to the pattern and the mold of some expectation, some demand, some master out there 
believing that if we can conform our lives enough, then maybe I, I'll know that I'm loved. I will know that my life has mattered. Infinite Jest author David Foster Wallace said it well, though irreverently, in a 2005 commencement speech at Kenyon College. He said, the only thing you get to choose is what you give your life to, not if. You will give your life to something you believe is ultimate, be it JC, Allah, Hare Krishna, education, or the marketplace. And so you might be laying down your life as a living sacrifice on the altar of career, molding and conforming every aspect, every waking moment of your life, and you're molding it in order to achieve and guarantee success. What is that? That's a living sacrifice. Or you might be conforming every corner of your life to the mold of the search for love in this world. Or maybe you're dedicating every waking moment and conforming every effort to the needs of your family because you need that family to be just so, just right and perfect, that you need it to be a model for everyone. What is that? That's a living sacrifice. What the Bible tells us is that all those other gods, whether we call them that or not, all those other gods will crush you when you fail, cannot forgive you when you fall, and can never actually love you even if you succeed. And what the gospel of Jesus says is this, all those other gods will demand everything from you and more, and in the end you'll discover that they were never able to deliver what they promised. There's only one God who offers you the kind of love you're looking for in all those other places. Where other gods demand your life as a sacrifice, when they demand that you meet up and measure up and atone for your own existence, when all those other gods are looking upon you with disapproval. The Bible tells us there's one God who gave up his own life to meet the demands of love that you could never meet on your own. And that it was his own blood that once and for all atoned. His gentle and lowly heart doesn't look on you with disapproval, but looks on you with mercy and love. The Bible tells us that there is only one true sacrifice, that it was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that if you look at the gods that demand every ounce of everything from you, and they can't deliver, there is a God who gives away everything he has, even his own life, so that you can know, so that you can know that you are beloved, even amid your failures and your weaknesses. The living God becomes a dying sacrifice so that you can look upon a dying God and become a living sacrifice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.